Welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. And I've got a great guest here today. Vicki Moore is the executive director and founder of an organization called Rahab's Rope. And they work internationally with the topic of human trafficking. And I know a lot of you listeners have worked with all kinds of human trafficking agencies and some colleagues I work with here and other friends around the country listening I know who work with this topic. It's really near and dear to your heart. So I hope you'll find this interesting today. Of course, near and dear to my own heart. And I uh, really hope to support organizations that end just the slavery and the horrible aspects of human trafficking. But without further ado, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Now, we're really glad to have you. It's a real joy to have you on the program. I've had some involvement with you in the past with Rahab's Rope, which we'll probably get to at some point. But could you tell us about Rahab's Rope a little bit, like maybe where the name came from and some of the work you do? So Rahab's Rope, we're 16 years old. I hadn't gone on a lot of short-term mission trips and ended up in India and loved India. And I was actually at home on the internet and came across a human trafficking story specifically to India. In the story, it gave worldwide stats, but then it gave India specific. And 16 years ago, I'd never heard of human trafficking. I didn't know what that term meant, Mm -hmm. but I loved India, so I'm reading it and just am shocked by what I'm reading. And then they video interviewed a young girl. And she, of course, was being helped because she had been rescued, but they wanted to share her story and so many other girls like her. And so she said that she was forced into this as a little girl. And the average age of girls trafficked in India is nine years old. And so she said, I never got to go to school. I can't read or write. And I'm not asking for a free handout. I just want someone to teach me how to do something. And so her story just really broke my heart. And God just really used that for me to know I needed to do something. So at the same time, I was enrolled at Liberty University, and one of my courses that semester was Old Testament survey, and we were to the book of Joshua and the story of Rahab, and my professor, Dr. Towns, he asked the question, or he started talking about, you know, that Rahab hid the spies under the flax plant. And he said she had at least enough of this plant in her house to hide two grown men, maybe more. We don't know how much she had in her house. And Mm -hmm. he said, what do you think she was doing with so much of this plant in her house? And what is that used for? Mm -hmm. So flax is used to make linen and rope. And so his question was, do you think Rahab made the rope in the story? And so we know that the rope represented her rescue Mm -hmm. physically initially because the spies told her to hang the rope out the window so that the Israelite army would know that it was her house. But then also we know that she believed in the God of Israel. So spiritually, she was rescued as well. And so I'm learning this at the same time. I have this young girl saying, please teach me how to do something so I can support myself. I just knew that the name of the organization would be Rahab's Rope because the things that we would teach the women would represent their rescue. Initially, physically, but as Christians, of course, we hope that spiritually they're rescued as well. And so that's the name. Oh, that's really, that's a neat story that to have such a long history behind it and the spiritual implications. Mm -hmm. And of course, some of our listeners come from a Christian background and some don't. Mm -hmm. And so obviously you listeners have picked up on the fact that Rahab's (laughs) Rope is a Christian organization, and that's what motivates you to help and rescue ladies Mm -hmm. around the world. That's so neat. And I can tell it. your faith is definitely a motivating factor in all of this. 
what kind of work do you do and where do you do your work with human trafficking? Well, we started as an aftercare home for young women that were rescued. And so they could live in the facility that we had. We could house up to 30 women. Or if they just needed services, they could come for the day. And so we offered counseling services, basic education, vocational training, just really whatever it was going to take to move a girl forward to a good place. You know, the vocational, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but we do have product that the women make that we sell here in the States. And for us, it's not really about the product, but that is part of the process of moving a girl forward and her realizing that she has worth and that she can do something else because she's been told most of her life that, you know, this is it for her, that she's not valuable for anything else than other than her body being sold. So we started with the aftercare home, and then a few years later, added a prevention program. We work in two communities where one of them was the largest red light area for a particular state in India, uh-huh. about 4,000 women. We went in and visited there, and what we were seeing is the average age children drop out of school was second grade, met a lot of teenage girls that had attempted suicide. And so we saw a need for prevention in this Mm -hmm. particular community. Actually, we first started with a little medical clinic because education was not something that the community saw as a need. And they didn't want tutoring for their children because we didn't see any need to send them to school. And so we started with a medical clinic to build relationship in the community because they did see their health as a need. And so started that way. But today we tutor 80 children every day after school, work with the families to keep them in school. And we started that in 2009. And so we've seen a big impact in the two communities where we are of keeping children in school, especially girls, and then even having them go on to higher education. And then we also provide life skill classes for teenage girls. So every Mm -hmm. week we have about 25 teenage girls participate in a life skills class. And it's just basic everyday skills that here in America that we kind of take for granted that our parents teach us or we learn in school that girls there don't know just basic health information and hygiene and just everyday type skills that we teach the girls there. And then the next year, another door opened for us. We kept having people asking us if we ever thought about working in direct rescue and Really had not, but that just kept getting presented in front of us. So we rent a building in the middle of about a 1,000 women that are being trafficked. And rescue for us looks a little different than probably a lot of people think. We're Mm -hmm. not raid and rescue, go in and grab them and jerk them out of there. You don't come in with a SWAT team or (laughs) something like that? we don't have a SWAT team. (laughs) Yeah. And so we probably have a little lady that's more powerful than a SWAT team there. But we rent a building, and we're there five days a week Mm -hmm. for the majority of the day. Our lead lady has a master's in social work. And so we are social workers, and we provide literacy classes, vocational training, counseling, just really a lot of relationship building with the women Mm -hmm. so that they'll trust us. And then we're able to tell them that we can help them get out. Because most of the women there are in their mid-20s, and they have some freedom to come and go. Mm Because if you think the average age is nine years old, they've been there most of their lives. And they really aren't worth a whole lot to the people that are over them at that point. And so they do have a little bit of freedom. And so we have access to those women and can talk with them and share things with them and offer to get their children out. Because even if the lady thinks that this is it for her and she has no hope, she doesn't want her child to stay there. But their children don't have birth certificates. Mm -hmm. So we get birth certificates for the children. The women's IDs have been taken. We get identification for women because unless they have proof they exist, there's really not 
a lot you can do with them because a children's home won't take them without ID or another transitional aftercare home, they have to have ID. And so that's part of our process with the women is getting an identification, doing medical checkups for them and being sure that they're healthy if they're not getting them on medications for that, all in an effort to be able to get them out and move them forward in a positive way. You know, what's striking me as I hear you talk about all this is some people think about Christian organizations like yours, that all you do is like preach and hand out Bibles or something like Mm -hmm. that, whatever. But I'm hearing medical care. I'm hearing after school programs, teaching, schools you run, whole Mm -hmm. list of practical stuff. Right. It sounds like you have quite a (laughs) apparatus or whatever you want to call quite an organization going on. Well, if you kind of go back and look at the model of Rahab even, Uh how that physically she was rescued first. And, you know, you can't, especially in the environment we work in, why would a woman believe anything you say Mm -hmm. about the Bible or about a God that cares for her or loves her? Because she doesn't think that exists. We just go in and with a servant heart Mm -hmm. and serve the women and let them know we do care about them. And so, and just provide the services that they need that they feel like are either beneficial to their life from their health aspect or would help them be able to get a job. And so we go in with that focus, and then we're able to share with them that we do love you, we do care about you, and there is a God that loves you and a God that cares about you. And so then there's a greater chance that they believe that just because of the service that we provide for them. And I know you're sort of the founder of this organization 16 years ago, and and you're the executive director, but you have a group of people that work with you. Tell the listeners, the workers that you have with you or people listening to this, it's really maybe touching their heart. Can they work with you in, in some way? Let's just say one of the listeners goes, oh, this is really touching me or something like that. How would I go about helping your Mm -hmm. organization or helping human trafficking? What would you say? We have about 15 nationals full-time in India and and then multiple part-time staff as well. And so a lot of what we do with people that want to go over and volunteer in Mm -hmm. India is really pouring into our staff Mm -hmm. because they're the ones that are going to be there day after day after day. And if you're looking in at the aftercare arena or even the women that are still being trafficked, You can't really go over there and in a couple of weeks build a relationship and Mm -hmm. women trust you. And, you know, they love for us to come and do programs for the women and really pour into the women from an educational standpoint, whether that's from a health aspect or any type of aspect, because the women have never really been taught anything, honestly, Mm -hmm. the ones that have been trafficked. And so we love to have folks that go over and just pour into our staff and help better equip our staff because the day to day is difficult. And, you know, they get kind of bogged down and get in a rut sometimes. And and when they have foreigners that come and just pour into them, it just gives them a refreshment, you know, and an encouragement to them. So that is something that's great. Or even we do develop a lot of product and we'll have people that have that background in them that come over and help us with new product ideas and work with our women teaching new skill sets from that aspect, too. You mentioned that you provide all these different services, medical, teaching, rescuing. I know you do drug treatment as well. The women that are rescued who are trying to find a more productive way to live their lives and provide a living for themselves, Mm -hmm. what is the product that you're talking about? 
In our vocational training, we put a lot of different type of vocations in front of the women for product making. It Mm -hmm. could be sewing, jewelry, crochet, embroidery, Mm -hmm. fabric dyeing, all kinds of things that we put in front of the women. And our goal is not to be a factory or not to keep a woman employed by us for Mm -hmm. the rest of her life, but we want to be that interim part of being able to move a lady forward. Mm -hmm. So while she's in our program, from the time she first comes in, um, as soon as she's able to make a product that's sellable then she starts making money. Mm -hmm. So she still may be with us a couple of years, but during that time, she's making money. We help her open a bank account. She's saving her money Mm -hmm. so that when she's in a good place and is able to be on her own, Mm -hmm. then she has some money to start with. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they're just coming in and taking a class and good luck, hope everything goes well. You know, we try to prepare them as best we can so that they're successful because otherwise they will just end up back in the red light area because they want to eat basically. Yeah. Yeah, It's survival, I guess. Exactly. Once they've reached that age in life of their mid twenties or older is survival. They don't want to do it and they might could walk away, but if they do, how am I going to feed my children? How am I going to feed myself? Mm -hmm. How am I going to do housing? And so we want to equip them in that. And so we work with other companies and try to find women jobs. And then we have certified sewing programs because most people in India still get their clothes made. Mm -hmm. And so that's really a good job that a lady can get. And we buy a lot of sewing machines. It's common for someone to work out of their home Mm -hmm. for sewing. And we help women start their own businesses there. Uh And then if it's something, you know, a lady really, if she's been trafficked when she comes in, she really doesn't have any thought process of what she would like to do or what she's capable of doing. And so as we're working through and letting her try different things, she may decide, I'd love to go to beauty school Mm -hmm. or I would like to work on a computer. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a class that we don't offer in-house, then we'll pay for her to be able to go and do that. But all along, too, she may still be making some things for us while she's in those classes so that she can still be making some money. Mm-hmm. And so we are a nonprofit organization, but we do product sales stateside and we have two retail stores. We do a lot of conferences. We do about 25 or 30 conferences every year and we take product to those conferences and share what we do. And so as a nonprofit, about 65% of our funding actually comes through product sales. Mm-hmm. In our stores, we carry other organizations' product as well, Mm -hmm. as well as buy from several fair trade companies. And we do that in India. We work with various artisans in India Mm -hmm. and design some of our own product with those artisans. And so in India, we're there on business visas, and we buy from several different Indian fair trade companies, and then we just sell those products here in the States to help us fund the work that we do. It makes me think of in the mental health fields and social services, the whole name of the game. It's a cliche, but teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime instead of just giving him a fish constantly. So it sounds like you're really teaching these ladies how to fish per se with all the skills you give them. And I've seen some of the product you have, the jewelry and the garment bags and things like that. Some of the listeners are curious right now, where could they go online Mm -hmm. to see the product you're talking about? Mm -hmm. So our website is www.rahabsrope.com and you can just click on online store there so you can shop online. And like I said, we have two retail stores in Georgia, one in Gainesville, Georgia, one in Clarksville, Georgia. So if anybody from Georgia is listening and are close to one of those areas. Yeah. And if you're from another part of the country, Gainesville is a little bit north Georgia and then Clarksville is 
Is, uh, is it Clarkston or Clarksville? Clarksville, even further north Georgia. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so we're the, about an hour above Atlanta, and the Clarksville store is about two hours above Atlanta. Okay, yeah, so north Georgia. But mm-hmm. do you all, I guess you ship things as well. Oh, yeah, People absolutely. People online, they'll yes. ship it to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. And, of course, the listeners can know if they purchase from a website like that, they're supporting women who are exactly. coming out of trafficking. Mm-hmm. And they're only purchasing items that have been made in ethical ways where correct it's not like there's sweatshops over no. there or anything like yeah. that you know and i use the term fair trade like everybody knows what that means and everybody yeah. doesn't know and in fair trade basically is stating that you're following 10 guidelines of good work ethics you've got a clean work environment mm-hmm. you have a safe work environment the person is getting a good wage for what they're being paid mm-hmm. and so you're just following these guidelines of good fair work for people those are the folks that we buy from in india Fair trade is not a certification, but it's a membership. Sure. But to be a member of Fair Trade, you have to follow these guidelines. And so those are the folks we buy from in India. Well, that's good. And so the listeners can go to your website and buy with a clear conscience. Exactly. <laughs> I don't need to worry about no. any kind of sweatshop. And no. I'll reveal it to the audience. I'm really passionate about Rahab's Rope and grateful that Vicky's here today because about a year ago, I was able to go to India with Rahab's Rope and just see the work they do. And I can just confirm to all you listeners that everything she's saying is right on the target. It was amazing for me to see the shops where they create the bags and the jewelry and things like that. The ladies working there are grateful to be there. And there's so much more happiness than what we saw in the Mm -hmm. darker parts of the area there where they were being more abused. There's obviously a lot of joy with the ladies that work with you. And that's certainly encouraging. Let me ask you a little bit about the dynamics of the ladies you work with, like when you're rescuing them, or maybe Mm -hmm. when you're in the early part of the process. You mentioned that a lot of them start when they're about nine years old or so. I guess a lot of them either can't be rescued or aren't rescued or aren't willing to be rescued. Maybe you can clarify that (laughs) until they're a little bit older. But when you first start getting them, what are some of the dynamics and heart issues that you see? When a lady first comes in that has been trafficked, eye contact is difficult, Mm -hmm. touch is difficult. You know, you're sitting beside a lady and you just reach over just with a gentle touch. She'll jump, you know, Mm -hmm. because touch is usually not a good touch for her. And there's really, you know, you can start talking to someone about maybe dreams or what they would like to do. And that thought process is just not even there Mm -hmm. because she's just been told and believed this was your lot in life. This is what you were made for. And part of that comes from the caste system in India. The caste system is supposed to be illegal, but it's still very much practiced. Mm -hmm. And if you're born into a certain position and level in life, that's where you're supposed to stay. And you see that. And people don't cross those lines in marriage, those types of things. And so the women just accept this was it loving on her and caring for her and letting her know that she is cared for, it starts to break that away in her mind. And then she starts thinking of things that she would like to do. And So is it mainly the ladies in the lowest caste that are dragged into human trafficking, or are there some from the higher caste levels too? The majority, I think, is from, or from what we see is yeah. from lower caste. But Some from higher have been kidnapped. A friend of mine with another anti-trafficking organization there, she was telling me one day that she saw this younger girl, about 15 or 16, and so she 
got an opportunity to speak to her privately, and she knew she looked like maybe she came from a family that had more money, and she did. And this was in South India, and she came from North India, and her family was very wealthy, had a private driver, and her driver had picked her up that wanted to take her to school and instead took her and sold her. And so the girl was newly there. My friend said, can I call your father? And she said yes and gave her her father's name and number. So she called the father and said, I found your daughter, and this is what's happened. And the father says, hold on just a minute, and I'll get back with you. And so he came back to the phone, and he said, the family's talked, and we've decided that she has been spoiled, and we don't want her back. That's really heart-wrenching. This is a young teenage girl that was kidnapped, but because what had already happened to her, the family felt like that would bring shame on their family, and they did not want her back. And that's pretty common there. It's really difficult to reunite a girl with her family, no matter what class she comes from, because there's a shame culture there, and this would bring shame on their family. So we don't see as many girls that maybe come from a wealthy background, because a lot of what we see is the traffickers will go into communities of slums or villages. Mm -hmm. They befriend people, and they make people think that this is a good guy. And they'll say, I can get your daughter an education, I can get her a job, and she can send money back to the family. And so the family willingly sends their daughter thinking they're doing a good thing for her and for the family. And then a girl ends up sold into a red light area somewhere, and she actually sends money home because she does not want her family to know what happened to her. Because her hope is always that one day she gets to go back home with her family. And if they find out, she thinks they won't accept me. They'll reject me. And it sounds like sometimes she's right. Oh, most of the time she's right. Oh, goodness gracious. And, you know, I'm just thinking, too, I mean, like I said, I got to go with you to India and I got to see what it was like. But a lot of the listeners are probably people who've never been to India and they've never seen the slums that you talk about. And, you know, us Americans might think of, oh, maybe I live in Chicago or Houston or somewhere. And there's sort of a ghetto part of my city somewhere that's sort of a little bit run down. Paint a picture a little bit for the (laughs) listeners, like what a slum in India is like versus maybe a bad spot here in America. Yeah, it's really hard to explain India to anyone. You know, Mm -hmm. you really have to experience India. But a slum in India... They're not going to have running water. Mm-hmm. They will go to a well, a pump somewhere to get water. A few people may have running water, but mostly they don't. Yeah. They may or may not have electricity. Mm-hmm. And if they do, chances are they've pulled it illegally from some power pole somewhere. Mm-hmm. Slums are mainly developed. People have migrated to communities in hopes of a job, and they squat on property that's not theirs mm-hmm. and build these communities. And so a lot of times then the owners of that property will come in and then those people are displaced again. Mm -hmm. But mostly the buildings will just be makeshift type buildings. More times than not, there's not going to be any kind of plumbing in the house. And so they're just going to go outside to a gully or just to the field beside the house Mm -hmm. or in Goa, one place we work, you're at the beach. And if a slum is on the beach... They're just going out to the beach for the water to wash away the waste. Mm -hmm. And so the conditions there are, to say unsanitary is an understatement of the conditions that are there because no running water, no plumbing, 
they're going to cook on an open fire a lot of times. They may have a gas burner, but a lot of times it's going to be on fire from whatever they could find to build a fire out of. So the unsanitary conditions, I'm guessing, would lead to a lot of health issues and a lot of people dying from illnesses that we might easily treat here in America. Mm -hmm. Yes, that. And then also just the diet there because they can't afford fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And so we see a lot of anemia and a lot of diabetes in the slum communities. And so a lot of skin diseases, a lot of times children don't have shoes, they cut their feet, Mm -hmm. cuts, infections, and all types of things like that. And we do take a couple of medical teams a year to India as well. And someone near and dear to you is on a medical team there right now. You want? To, yeah. Is it okay to mention that? Yeah. So my husband's there in India now, and we have a medical team that's working in two locations while they're there. Yeah, we have a PA on our board, and uh-huh. so she's leading this medical team. Yeah. So any listeners who may come from a medical background also could mm-hmm. possibly help your organization. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's not just mental health, although that's what our program is about. Yeah. You've been doing this for 16 years now. And I'm assuming there's some highs and lows that you've encountered over the years. What are some of the more difficult parts of your work? And what are some of the things that really inspire you or encouraging in what you do? The difficult parts are all the stories, because the women and the children really suffer from a lot of abuse. And so that's hard. It's hard to hear what they've been through. But the good part is the overcoming of that. You know, we surround our store with pictures of smiles and and women that we know and children that we've helped. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people will say, I'm not in India full time. I never felt that I was supposed to be there full time, I think, just from our business model. But I'm there about four months out of the year. And of course, we have staff there that are full time. And But even at that, they're like, how do you deal with that every day? Mm -hmm. You know, this would just be so overwhelming. And just even if you looked at stats from human trafficking, you know, there's supposedly over 40 million people being trafficked today. And I say, I don't look at 40 million people. I look at one person. Mm -hmm. And I know that we've made a difference in this person's life. And that gives us the encouragement and just the strength. We want to help one more person. And so we just really look at it one person at the time. And I have a quote on my email that says, to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's just how I look at it. And I can look and I can say, she would be dead today if we weren't there because of infection or disease or from being beat up the night before and left in the street to die. And so, you know, if we had not been there... She would not be alive today. Or this teenage girl would not have got to go to college, and now she's a teacher. You know, just both from the prevention work to the aftercare work that we do and knowing that we've affected so many lives. Yeah. It's funny here in America, all the politicians the last few weeks have been debating about who's going to pay for free college and stuff like that. But y'all are actually doing it to some degree over in (laughs) India. Yeah. (laughs) College is pretty reasonable there. And so if I can keep a girl in school, we're going to keep a girl in school. That's great. Yeah. You touched on something that a lot of people in the mental health fields deal with because, you know, we deal with abuse and things like that here in America as well. We talk about Mm self-care a lot here about, you know, how do you sort of cope with all this stuff? And here you've been in this field for 16 years hearing all this stuff. How would you say you cope when you hear all those stories you talk about how do you handle it per se honestly 
because I am a Christian, I think that that's key to being able to deal and handle with all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like being able to read my Bible and get encouragement from that and, mm-hmm. and draw in strength from that and being able to pray, and that is really what gets us through a lot of difficult situations, mm-hmm. knowing that I do serve a God that loves me and cares about me mm-hmm. and that I can extend that to other people. That is my main source of strength that I have. Mm-hmm. And then we do physical things. We do take vacation time and mm-hmm. hang out with friends and things like that that are just fun things for us to do. And and sometimes if we're going to be in India for an extended period of time, we'll take a few days and go somewhere, a country close by or just to somewhere that mm-hmm. is more of a resort type place and yeah. and just get some rest and relaxation and recharge. It's good. Well, a lot of the Christians listening know that, you know, God did create a Sabbath. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. he knows we do need to rest sometimes from, yeah. from the work we do. And I hope the listeners bear that in mind and take that Sabbath sometimes and don't feel bad about it. We need it. We're not superhuman. We're, no. we're still human. <laughs> I know that since you've been in this field for a long time, way before a lot of other human trafficking organizations, you've interacted with a lot of people internationally. And I know in the coming few weeks, you're going to be going to New York City to interact Mm -hmm. with an international organization. (laughs) Tell the listeners about that just a little bit, if you would. Well, I'll be at the UN. It's called the UN CSW, the Commission on the Status of Women. Mm -hmm. So it's sponsored by UN Women. And the way that that first came about, I had met a lady at a conference, and her aunt was a member of the UN and had an organization called Global Alliance for Women's Health and did a lot for heart disease and diabetes for women around the world. And that particular year, the focus for UN Women was ending violence against women. And so this lady I met at the conference told her aunt, she says, I really think that you should call and talk to Vicki Moore and invite her to the UN this year. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Wolfson made an appointment with me and had a few ambassadors on the phone. And I went mm-hmm. through a pretty rigorous interview session with all of them. And they decided they liked me and what I was doing pretty good. And so they invited me up for the Commission on the Status of Women that year. And so I've been invited back several times since then. This year, we're pretty excited. They have an artisan fair every year at UN Women. We've been accepted to come. You have to apply, and there's a lot of organizations that apply, but we get to represent our women and some of the product they make this year at the UN. So it's not just on your website. You're going to the UN to show the whole world what you're doing. Yeah, And the story I'll share with you, and it's the story that really got us in the Artisan Fair, is when we first started making product in the red light area with the women there, the first time we paid them, they said, this is the first good money we've ever made. Hmm. And they just said it casually, but it pretty much blew us away that considered this the first time money came from a good place. And so... For us, that meant dignity. And so we call it the good money bracelet and say that good money means dignity. And so we love sharing that story. And that's what we'll be representing at the UN at the Artisan Fair is the good money bracelet. Wow, that's really cool. (laughs) I guess most listeners probably don't think about how it's not just rescuing them. Part of the emotional recuperation is giving them their dignity back. Exactly. Instead of feeling like a sexual object to be used. Mm -hmm. you have value as a person. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's really cool. And I'll tell you, listeners, that's really why I'm excited about this organization. I mean, I've seen it firsthand, the work they do over there, and it really is powerful. And we here in America like to talk about helping women and things like that. But the level to which this group helps women over there is really 
on a whole different level than most of us talk about. It's really encouraging. So tell us one more time your website. So it's www.rahabsrope. And in case you don't know how to spell Rahab, because a lot of people, (laughs) even if they are Christian, are like, well, who's Rahab? (laughs) But um, it's R-A-H-A-B-S-R-O-P-E.com. Okay. And they can learn more about your organization there, or -hmm. if they want to donate financially or volunteer in some way, they could learn more about those opportunities there. Well, I hope that's encouraging you listeners today, just to know that when you hear about these type of organizations or these type of topics like human trafficking, I know a lot of times I'll hear our students say, gosh, that's such a horrible thing. And how could I help somebody? Well, these are some practical ways you can help. You can volunteer with this organization. You can donate to this organization. If you have loved ones, family members, friends who are having a birthday or Christmas or something like that where you give gifts, you can go to their website and just find some really neat stuff that you're not going to find at Walmart or any other Target or any other stores around the States here. You'll find really unique gifts that I'm sure they'll find really meaningful. And when they hear where it was made and how it was made, that'll really encourage your loved ones as well to know that they're getting something that was made in a very redemptive way. Thank you so much for your time today, Vicki. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. I know our listeners are going to be encouraged by hearing you today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com.